actually experience. For example, we experience time, so we live within time, correct? Can I ask you the question, what is time? I'll wait. Because <laughs> you understand, physicists can't explain time. They can't. There's like, it's a concept of, is it minutes? Is it relative? Is it absolute? Because you have Einstein who said it was relative, and then you have Newton who said, nope, it's absolute. It's an interesting concept now, right? But they can't understand the intricate workings of time itself. So, if we can't understand a piece of creation, how can we fully understand the almighty creator outside of these concepts that we deal with on a constant basis? So, today we'll do our best to explain the humanity of Christ, but the purpose is also to prove the humanity of Christ. That makes sense. So, we're going to start with our introductions. Just like last week... Don't worry about taking notes. There's going to be a whole lot of stuff. If you want the PowerPoint, I will give you the PowerPoint. Just email me at pastorchris at ccob.org, and I'll send you over the PowerPoint. So, our introduction. Have you dealt with the question, is Jesus God? That was last week. The answer is yes. There's another important question. Is Jesus man? The answer is yes. It is essential to believe in Jesus' humanity as it is to believe in Jesus' deity. They go hand in hand. See, some believe that if they believe in Jesus' deity, that is enough. Wrong. The earliest major heresy in the church was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is knowledge. The Gnostics claimed that they had a new way of knowing that they would make Christianity better. They didn't believe that Jesus was fully man. The part of Gnosticism is docetism, so, which means appeared or seemed. So their proponents argue that Jesus only appeared or seemed to have a body, appeared. Kind of messes you up when you have 500 witnesses after the resurrection seeing Jesus, like pointing to him. And like, yeah, he's there. 500 witnesses. You know, two or more people cannot have the same hallucination, right? So they insisted that God could not truly indwell human flesh for the human body or the human flesh was too sinful. God truly and literally indwelling human flesh was out of the question. Now we have a problem. See, as Gnosticism was on the horizon toward the latter half of the first century, this, uh, and certain New Testament epistles, as well as the Gospel of John, dealt with this. So, in Jude chapter 3, it says, Beloved, while I was very, it was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And that's in Jude 3. This is another apologetic uh, passage. Apologetics being the defense of the faith. We are called to, to contend for the faith on a consistent basis. 
in 1 John 4, 1, 2. This is beloved. I do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So if it says the opposite, what is it of? The enemy, the devil, it's deceit, it's false. Because God can't be true and not true at the same time. It makes no sense, right? John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. See, the purpose of these verses was shown how important it was to believe in Jesus' humanity. Because of Arianism and the need of the Nicene Creed, the church was often tended to forget that the earlier threat of the faith was undermining Jesus' humanity. To deny that Jesus is in the flesh is to reveal that one has a spirit of error behind him or her. Interesting, right? Well, you probably asked the question, well, I just believe that Jesus is God. That's true. But he was also human. We have to believe in the entirety of who Jesus is. Now, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So if he was suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was born, suffered, crucified, and died. How was he not human? On the third day, he arose again from the dead. See, what is noteworthy, however, is that the reference to the virgin birth was inserted to prove the humanity of Christ. So, how human was Jesus? Well, he had a human mother. We just talked about the birth, right? And we're going to go into the virgin birth a little bit more again. I know we did a whole study on it, but we have to talk about it because it does prove his humanity and his deity. So, his mother, Mary, was a human being with a human ancestry in Luke 3. She had a human cousin named Elizabeth, the mom of John the Baptist. Mary went through a normal nine-month human pregnancy. It's a long time, gentlemen. Yes, very long, long time. <laughs> she had a human delivery of her child, she had a normal human uh, anxieties. She had other human children. She attended human social events and religious feasts. The virgin birth itself is the proof of his deity, is equally proof of his humanity. He was the son of Mary. Jesus was conceived, conceived in her womb by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Mary was found to be with child 
from the Holy Spirit. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. The child would be holy. Luke 1, 35. Continuing with the virgin birth. When he was born, he was a human baby. Salvation comes through the seed or offspring of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And not through human effort. Now, what is Genesis 3.15? What's the big fancy word? Come on, guys. You can do, Pastor Jay, you can't answer it. Stop. I know, I know. I just I saw you. I saw you pick you picked this out up. The Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. So this is the first prophecy of Christ. It's the work of God himself. The virgin birth made possible by uniting the full deity and full humanity in one person. Yeah, that's wild. That's crazy. I, we can't conceive of it. Jesus came to the world as a man, Galatians 4.4. Jesus was a complete human being. See, we understand the concept of 100%, right? So you're like either 50, 50, 60, 40, you know, 20, 80, whatever the numbers are, right? No, no, no. He was 100% God and 100% human. It's concepts that we can't fully grasp, right? But we can prove it. The virgin birth makes it possible for Jesus to be fully human without the inherited sin. See, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, says, By nature we are children of wrath. See, human beings have inherited legal guilt. See, we're totally depraved. It doesn't mean that we are thoroughly depraved in his actions as he could possibly be, nor that everyone will indulge in every form of sin, nor that a person cannot appreciate and even do acts of goodness, but it does mean that the corruption of sin extends to all men and all parts of all men so that there is nothing within the natural man that can be given him merit in God's sight, and that was Charles Ryrie in his uh, systematic theology. So Jesus did not descend from Adam in exactly the same way in which every human being descended from Adam. So how would that happen? Well, he would have to have a human father to be directly um, conceived and descended from Adam. So we would have a human mother and a human father. So this is why, so the, now let me just backtrack real quick. The Holy Spirit was implanted and uh, impregnated Mary. So his father is directly God. So this is why the legal guilt and the moral corruption which belongs to other human beings did not belong to Christ. See, the Holy Spirit's Work prevented not only the transmission of sin through Joseph, but also, in a miraculous way, the transmission of sin uh, from Mary. The Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God, Luke one thirty-five. 
he had human relatives. In Mark 6, 3, it says, Is it not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. See, imagine, Jesus had to be born, right? Go through the process of being a child. Had siblings. What do you do with your siblings? You fight with them. You do. You fight with people you live with. That usually happens. So he lived a normal childhood. See, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says, After that he was seen by James, his brother, then by all the apostles. So his brother was mentioned there, and then his brother eventually came to know him as Lord. See, human weaknesses and limitations. So don't we have human weaknesses and limitations? Jesus had a human body. He was born as other human babies are born, Luke 2, 7. He grew through childhood just as other children grow. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him, Luke 2.40. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, Luke 2.52. He got tired, as we do in John 4.6, and he became thirsty in John 4.6. So it sounds pretty human so far. We have a little bit more to go. He became hungry. Matthew 4, 2. His fast in the desert would, make, would have uh, made him physically weak. You ever fast for a long period of time? You get weak physically. See, at the time, the angels ministered to him. On the way to be crucified, soldiers forced Simon the Cyrene to carry his cross, so he physically couldn't carry the cross. The culmination of his limitations is seen in his succumbing to death on the cross. His human body ceased to function just as ours will when we die. See, Paul said he was crucified in weakness. The cross exhibited the weakness of Christ in his humanity, not his deity. So this is revealing that he was susceptible to death even as the Son of God. Now his resurrected body. Although our chief focus is on the humanity of Christ, before his resurrection, an examination of his humanity afterwards is very, very revealing. See, although he was no longer subject to the weakness or death, Jesus himself demonstrated that he still had a real physical body. See, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have, Luke 24, 39. So this shows that he had flesh and bones, right? He says, touch me. I'm real. He's not merely a spirit without a body, right? And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy, and they, 
and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? So after his resurrection, he got hangry. He said, I want some food. If that doesn't tell you someone's human, hey, <laughs> I don't know what does, right? You know, after a resurrection, who wouldn't want to grab a meal, you know? It's a lot of work. See, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and, before, uh, and ate before them. Luke 24, 40 to 43. And the reason why we're going through this is so when people ask you questions, well, how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? Now you actually have verses to point to and give them an apologetic, an argument to defend the faith. Because you're supposed to always contend for the faith. Yes? Yes? yes. All right. Good. See, continuing with his resurrected body, the way in which Jesus ascended to heaven was calculated to demonstrate between his existence in a physical body below and his continuing existence in that same body in heaven. There is a man in glory. There is one mediator, man, Christ, Jesus, in 1 Timothy 2.5. He is the second person of the Trinity, right? As the second person of the Trinity, he is fully man also and fully God. Now, Jesus had a human mind, didn't he? Well, the fact is that he increased in wisdom, which tells us that he had a learning process. Well, what do you have to learn to do as a child? Learn to read, write, walk, talk. His ABCs, multiplication tables. He had to read the Old Testament, the Torah, the first five books. He had to memorize them probably in his Hebraic school. When you have a child, what do you do? You teach them literally everything. Teach them how to roll over. Right? When you start off with an infant, you got to roll over. Oh, you got to teach them how to consume food, like kind of like, you know, don't drink too much or whatever milk. You have to teach them how to walk. Teach them how not to bump into things. Teach them how to crawl before they walk, hopefully. <laughs> Teach them that the stove is hot. Things that you think are automatically common sense, you have to teach. So imagine Jesus had to go through this entire teaching process, fully human. He learned obedience, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, and continued this even after his bar mitzvah. Then... He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Luke 2, 51. That must be a humbling experience, you know, for Mary to literally teach God in physical form how to do all the things that normal humans do. Just amazing, like, humbling concepts. See, Joseph had to teach him how to be a what? A carpenter. Imagine, I don't know, guys, you ever go, to, go hang out with your dad? He teaches you how to put things together. My dad, he, like, used to take things apart, and there was always extra pieces. So I learned that very well. Right? But that must have been a very humbling experience for them, that those two parents taught Jesus as a baby everything, like in the, in the, in the physical sense. Oh, it just kind of blows my mind. So Jesus had a soul and emotions. 
Now my heart is troubled, John 12, 27. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in his spirit. The Greek word tarasso, which means troubled, is a word that is often used of people when they are anxious or suddenly surprised by danger. Now, here are four examples. Herod was disturbed. They're using the same word in Greek. I'm just giving you the English translation. Uh, when he heard from the Magi that the king of the Jews was born. The disciples were terrified when they saw Jesus walking on the sea. And though he uh, thought he was a ghost, I don't know about you. That would freak me out a little bit, somebody walking on water. Not going to lie. Just like, hey. This is, you're walking on a very, a sea that's happening right now. I would get freaked out, not going to lie. People think that we read these stories and they're like, oh, yeah, this, Jesus, of course he did that. See, they weren't fully, they didn't fully understand the concept yet, I don't think. See, Zacharias, uh, Zachariah, visibly shaken when he saw an angel. Well, this kind of goes back to understanding that he was, this didn't happen on an everyday basis, right? We read it, and it seems like it happened so often. It didn't happen often. So when Zechariah saw an angel in the temple, he got freaked out. So the disciples were troubled when Jesus appeared after his resurrection, Luke 24, 38. See, John, who lays some stress on this, right, about being troubled in the spirit, See, in chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Jesus answered and said to them, Most surely I say to you that the Son can do nothing of himself, but that he sees the Father do, or whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. So everything that Jesus did was based off of what the Father has called him to do. So if you really think about it from this perspective, when people were troubled in their spirit, this was part of the process that he did everything in accordance and obedience to the Father himself. Jesus had a human soul and emotions continued. He was amazed at the faith of the centurion. He wept with sorrow at the death of Lazarus. He can be angry. You understand he made a cord, of rip, uh, a cord with whips, flipped over tables. Twelve Pharisees, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. Pretty angry. Hey, but as Christians, we're going to be nice to everybody. Yeah, we can't call sin out, right? You can't do that. You can't judge people, right? Really. We're actually called to judge, and we could be angry. He says, be angry and do not what? Sin. So you're allowed to get angry. There's things that you do get angry for. With, which I think that, you know, in Western Christianity we've kind of lost track of because we do get angry. It's a human emotion. Jesus got angry over, in, over sin. Shouldn't we get angry over sin? If you see someone as a pedophile, do you get angry? I do. You know what's amazing? That with that type of sin, sexual sin, you see prisoners, the worst of the worst prisoners, get angry. Over those things. I knew a guy that was in jail, and he said to me, he's like, you know, I don't mind. You can steal your grandmama's pension. You could steal from your family. 
shoot, you can murder somebody. I kind of get it. Because when it comes to sexual sin, he gets angry. It's amazing that you see that human emotion and consistency and absolutism throughout even criminals. So it's okay to get angry. So Jesus, he prayed with deep emotion. Now, when we pray, do we pray with emotion? Yes. But do we fall into emotionalism? No, we don't. It's far more than that. Now, is our faith, it's not based on emotion, but it's based on a a spiritual relationship that's so deep that causes emotion. If that makes sense. In Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, went with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood. This is right before his crucifixion. You can imagine the emotional intensity that was going through Jesus' mind. During his earthly life, Christ offered both requests and supplication with loud cries and tears. To the, to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his devotion. Once again, I kind of revamped it in a different translation, Hebrews 5, 7. And I also looked at different parts of it so we could see it in different a- angles. Luke twenty two forty four, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood again. So you see, he prayed earnestly. See, you take these two passages, right, and you see different portions. So being in agony, he prayed earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood, showing great more agony, right? And then in Hebrews 5, 7, you see, with vehement cries of tears to him. And offering supplication. So you can take different, the same passage, right? And look at different portions of it. You can break up the passage and see the different aspects that shows Christ's humanity just in these two verses. Now the average Christian, you know how long they pray? One minute a day. You know how long the average pastor prays? Three minutes a day. It's probably at meals. That shows the depravity of our Western Christianity. That's sad, right? You see Jesus in a consistent time of prayer and emotion and being obedient to God throughout all this in his humanity. Possibly the most extraordinary revelation is that Jesus was perfected by way of suffering. He was made perfect through suffering. Now you're saying, whoa, hold on a second. I thought Jesus was perfect because he was fully God and fully man. Right? If he was fully God, he would have to be perfect, right? See, this is not pointing to that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. We have to look at it in what? Context. What this is saying that he, his mission was completed perfectly. He went to the cross 
And that was made perfect through suffering. He had to go to the cross and suffer for our sins and raise again. And that's what was his mission. And that was perfectly accomplished. So the image of Jesus as a son learning obedience illustrates his solidarity to humanity. So you see him as learning through all this and then suffering through all this. He was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He was tempted in every way like us and without sin. People saw Jesus only as a man. See, there was nothing spectacular about Jesus. Nothing about his appearance. There's nothing that said he was a handsome man, right? So in Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now, let's look at this. King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. Well, let's see what first. Samuel 16, 12. I didn't put it up there, but I'm just going to read it to you. And he had a choice and a handsome son whose name was Saul. There was uh, not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. See, we look at a charismatic leader and we expect them to look a certain way. They expect them to be in a certain uh, shape. They have a certain style. They have a certain way of speaking. Well, he didn't look that great. He looked like everybody else. Right? Now look at King David in 1 Samuel 16, 12. David. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. For this is the one. So he was good looking too. People are attracted to good looking people. Like when they see someone, oh wow, they're so good looking. That's the first thing people see. And I'll prove it to you. Do you know more about celebrities, Christian celebrities too, than you do about I don't know, theologians. You look at John Calvin, he was... <laughs> Pastor Jay agrees. <laughs> right? Easy, easy to agree. We're in agreement. But what do we do? We automatically are attracted to those people. So he actually became, came in humility. Now he's fully... Now he could have came in any form he wanted. Any form he wanted. And he chose humility. That says something. First 30 years of his life, Jesus' life was, no, was so ordinary that the people of Nazareth who knew him best were amazed that he could teach and work miracles. He was the carpenter's son. He was a carpenter. His brothers did not believe him. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, 
I have come down from heaven. So as we move on, we have Jesus' faith. As a human, he had to exhibit faith. So there are at least three further matters of Jesus' life and mission that spring from his being a man. Jesus was a man of faith, he was a man of prayer, and Jesus in his relationship to the Holy Spirit. So we're going to cover those in the next um, 10 or so slides. Jesus was said to be filled or full of the Holy Spirit in Luke 4.1. He was said to be led by the Spirit. We may therefore take it that all that he did was under the leadership of the Spirit in his life. He went so far to say that the Son can do nothing of himself. Now, is this something that we strive to attain? Absolutely. Will we attain it in this life? Not a chance. Not a chance. We've already failed because we as children of God, we tend to be what? Disobedient sometimes, right? We fall into sin. But Jesus was constantly led by the Spirit. And he was completely obedient to the Spirit and obedient to his Father. See, John the Baptist said that Jesus had the Spirit without limits. See, by contrast, we have the Spirit with a certain measure or limit. That is why we are urged to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, But Jesus had all of God, and there is all of the Holy Spirit that is possible for a person to have. He had everything. This is the concept of being fully God and fully man. The Spirit without limit enabled Jesus to have faith without limit. The writer of Hebrews affirms Jesus as a man of faith. I will put my trust in him, Hebrews 2.13. His tormentors and his accusers at the cross said to him, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Matthew 27, verse 43. Jesus' faith had two, at least two purposes. It enabled him to heal, perform miracles, pray, keep his eyes on the Father, and maintain perfect, not somewhat perfect, but perfect obedience. And that shows his absolute love to the Father, his perfect obedience. If you notice, throughout the scriptures, you see the concept of obedience. There's an underlying theme telling you to what? Be obedient. Be obedient. See, faith is what produces obedience. And I 100% stand behind that. Because if you have faith, you should be obedient. Jesus' perfect faith resulted in perfect obedience, right? So this is why the gospel revealed from faith to faith, Romans 1.17, is by Jesus' faith that he accomplished all that he did in life and death. 
But unless we too believe, we cannot be saved. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. We need faith, faith to be saved, but we also need faith to be obedient. His intercession at God's right hand is with a perfect faith. And in Galatians 2.20 where Paul says he lives by the faith of the Son of God. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. And we see that through Jesus' incarnation, his physical life, that he was faithful and obedient. Jesus, the man of prayer. He did not pray because he was God, but because he was man. He obviously felt the need to pray. It's amazing that the Son of God, God incarnate, felt the need to pray. And for some reason, Christians don't feel the need to pray. What's the first thing that happens when you go through a problem? Do you pray? No, no, no. You try to fix the problem. I do too. We all do. Same. Perpetual sin. <laughs> but we need to pray, right? Are we supposed to pray in all things or just some things? Pray in all things. We're supposed to constantly be in a prayer. We're supposed to pray without what? Ceasing. This doesn't mean you go in your prayer closet for 24 hours a day and sit there and pray. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to be in constant communication with God. He prayed all the time. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary solitary place. And there... He prayed, Mark 135. So he actually left and prayed. This is where you do go into your prayer closet. And prayer closet is a relative term. You don't have to go into a closet, but you should have time with God. Before coming to the, um, before becoming a Christian, I was um, in finance. I'm going to tell you a personal story. And this is interesting because when you're in finance, you know, people want to be successful. The goal for finance is what to make what? Make money. Make it rain, right? No. And it was about having a big house, nice cars, all those other things. And people used to spend, and I'm not lying to you, $1,000 for an hour of someone's time so they can tell them how to be more successful. So they used to say, hey, you know, if I spend $1,000 and they give me that one thing, to make me successful, just an hour. That hour, that thousand dollars was worth it because the goal is to, like an investment, it would, it would invest, it would, it would compound on itself. Well, we have access to the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. That prayer, the word prayer, is communication with one's deity in. Uh, the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Our deity is the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. We have full communication. And we don't have to spend $1,000. 
And guess what? You can have more than an hour of his time. Why would they spend, you see, more faith in people outside of the Christian faith than people inside the Christian faith? Why is that? Because we don't follow the example of God. When Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, we're supposed to be imitators of Christ. And here's part of being imitators of Christ. As a man, he was human. He went through the stuff that we go through. So in Luke 6, 12 to 13, it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all, thing, all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. He didn't pick the nice guys. Nope. Matthew was a tax collector. No one liked the guy. No one. Nope. He was like the most hated person. Like, he was just like the guy like, oh, that's the tax collectors. Go this way. Okay, see if we can go around and not pay. No. He was the most disliked person in the Jewish community. He was the backstabber. He was joining the Romans. He was selling out his own people. He picked that guy. <laughs> but if you notice, he went and prayed about it. God, the Son of God, prayed about it. So why did Jesus feel the need to pray? Communion with the Father. You always hear me, John eleven forty two. He needed to get away from his, uh, the crowds. He dismissed them as well as the disciples to be alone. He wanted no distraction, nothing to compete with his attention and communion with God. And so when he anticipated an extraordinary miracle, Jesus See, just before he walked on water, he prayed. Just before feeding the 5,000, guess what? He prayed. Just before raising Lazarus from the dead, he prayed. And just before being transfigured, guess what? He prayed. I think this study really shows us on who, how we're supposed to live just as Christ lived as a man. And we should be imitating this on a consistent basis. In John 14, 16, it says he prayed for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. His high priestly prayer in John 17 is broken down this way. In verses 1 through 5, I'm not going to go into it because we don't have that much time, but he prayed for himself. Then he prayed for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. And then he prayed for all of us in 20 to 26. His communion with the Father was apparently broken on the cross as being the only time he addressed the Father as God. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. 
That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That moment, that time frame, he didn't have communion with the Father. I'm not going to pretend that I fully understand it because I don't. I don't think anyone does. But he was so brokenhearted over that lack of communion with the Father. So from an application perspective, how do we feel when we have a lack of communion with the Father? Do we revel over it? Do we enjoy it? Hey, the Father's not keeping tabs on me. I could do whatever I want, or is it I'm brokenhearted because I'm not seeking the time and seeking God himself on a consistent basis? Do I let life get, get ahead of God? Is my family more important than God? Is my, my children more important than God? Is, it, is my job more important than God? Because we spend more time at our jobs than we do with our family and God, don't we? Unfortunately, we do. But why? Why don't we seek God on a consistent basis to commune with him? And once again, I beat Pastor Jay. <laughs> Victory. <laughs> so the conclusion is, Jesus was very human. If he had not been so... He could not have truly represented us as our substitute on the cross. Praise God for our Savior. By him being man, which is God's greatest creation on earth, sin can only be forgiven through the shedding of blood. God provided the first sacrifice, and he provided the last sacrifice. By providing that last sacrifice... He gave us the opportunity to come into communion with the Father through Jesus Christ. So in his complete humanity, he was obedient to complete the mission that the Father sent out for him. So as we break up in groups, I didn't put a, a question up here. I want you to discuss how you can be in a greater communion with God. On a consistent basis. That's your one question. How can I be in a better communion, or better in communication with God and commune better with Him? All right, break up, go.